and welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast from Startup Daily TV on Ausbiz, 2pm every weekday. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net. My other job is, of course, hosting the show, along with this guy. I'm Elliot Hasty, and my full-time job is over on Ausbiz, of course, but the highlight of every day, Simon, would have to be producing the Startup Daily show with you. Oh, Elliot, fantastic. And I love watching Cracking Crypto, which is on just before my show at 1.30 each weekday. We're going to get into one of the guests that transcended both, but that is for later in the piece. Simon, what was the big story this week? Well, look, I think I'm going to stay domestic this week because, of course, yesterday the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, announced 1.2 million jobs for tech woohoo, by 2030 if Labor is elected at the May election. Now, it's not quite as impressive as it sounds because, of course, the Tech Council of Australia, who was there with Robin Denholm uh, yesterday for this announcement, uh, has already got a target of 1 million by 2025. Now, we're at 860,000 at the moment, so we've got another 140,000 jobs to come in the next three years, and then after that, 200,000 over the next five. Here's the thing about that. The pledge is roughly works out an extra 40,000 jobs a year over that time. During the pandemic, we added 65,000 tech jobs annually. So, I'm kind of wondering about the ambition of this one, although it was interesting in terms of the promises of 465,000 fee-free TAFE places, another 20,000 university places on focusing on areas of skill shortage, including tech, you know, a bunch of other things, but working very closely with the Tech Council. Do you reckon that this is part of, you know, as you said, it's not particularly ambitious as a goal, but maybe it's one of those things where the government pledges it to get in and then they can pretty quickly down the line say, hey, look, we exceeded our goal admittedly from a low base, but do the public know that? Yeah, that's. Yeah, I try and do that sort of thing all the time, mate. I'm going <laughs> to Justifying jump, I'm it. Gonna jump, you know, this is how much I'm going to lift with my personal trainer and wacko, you can kind of beat it by five if you're lucky. But what was interesting was uh, Nikki Chevak from Blackbird sort of jumped on Twitter after that. And I thought his comment was interesting. The problem with government initiatives that involve technology is that they first look to universities. How to engage more R&D, question mark, link up with universities. How to get more tech jobs, question mark, fund more university places. Universities are correlated with success, not the cause of it. Now, that sparked a little bit of a Twitter war amongst a few uh, venture capitalists and others. So it was uh, a really interesting debate he got going on Twitter. Although I have to say, James Riley from Innovation Australia, hi. He said, universities are correlated with success, not the cause of it, in the same way that VCs are correlated with success, not the cause of it. I have to say it's quite interesting what he does say, you know, universities are correlated with success because think of some of the biggest companies we know, like just think about Meta, you know, they're they're dropouts. So there is a correlation, but also it's very old school thinking and there is going to be a new way of thinking which does need to get away from just relying on these old institutional bodies. Mate, we've seen a couple of years of pretty creative destruction uh, around the pandemic and what's been happening in unis. But then think about, you know, what Murray Herps is doing at UTS, David. Mm, They're doing great things. You know, there are two blokes who are actually going to be in the, who are in the the rich list today in the top 10 in the, in the Australian uh, by the name of Cannon Brooks and Farquhar who met at university. So there's something going on at universities that can sort of lead to other things. It's not definitely go to uni, this will happen, but, you know. Oh, definitely. Like, it's, it's correlation. There is you know. some pollen in the air. Yeah, not taking away from it at all. I just think 
you know, there is when you're growing up in schools, it's like you have to go to university, you have to get a degree, this, this and this. And it just, it's correlated. It's not going to be the cause of it. You don't have to go through these methods. And it sort of seems the government is almost kneecapping its tech abilities by saying, let's focus in on universities. Yeah, I suppose it's their go-to for that sort of thing. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I just hope we get more jobs in tech because there's a long way to go. But the reality is, Elliot, it's going to make you rich, rich, rich. Rich, rich beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, unfortunately, on the rich list, apparently so does mining. And, I mean, I'll accept Twiggy because he's doing a lot of great work uh, in the renewable space, but it does seem... You know, it's tech and mining that are the big guns. So the Australian's 2022 edition of The List is out today, featuring Australia's 250 richest. There are plenty of tech people in there. Of course, the, uh, shall we say, number eight with a bullet are Canvas, Mel Perkins and Cliff Albrecht, the husband and wife duo and co-founders there. Cam Adams is also on the list, but just outside the top 10. And uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, of course, and Scott Farquhar from Atlassian are in at number four and five. The really interesting thing, though, is there is this shift away from mining and property, which were the traditional paths to wealth in Australia, for technology. And, of course, the other thing is, you know, like Clive Palmer's in the top 10 as well, so you've got a bunch of miners. But, you know, these are people in their 60s, whereas you look at Mel and Cliff, they're in their mid-30s, Cannon Brooks and Farquhar in their 40s. You know, they're dragging down the age of becoming rich. I mean, there are some fascinating numbers around that. Even Ron, um, Robin Denholm features on it, sort of with around about half a bill. So, you know, the Tesla chair and chair of the Tech Council of Australia and now Blackbird uh, partner is uh, also featured. Now, where are the ones that have made it rich on crypto i noticed that they're doing an nft for this and yet there's not someone in the nfts on the on the 250 maybe if you get one elliot that will make your fortune uh if you know if i'd got the ash barty one of the last ball shot at the australian open imagine what that's going to be worth now (laughs) well speaking of youth though uh, we had some cracking guests on the show this week and on friday elliot you spoke to dr james curran ceo of grok academy about this amazing event they did last week called cyber live where basically they got ten thousand kids to protect australia from a hack it is so cool i actually wish i'd watched it just because it sounds like such an amazing event. You know, they got the, the, the government was involved, the Defence Force. Um, so, yeah, it was 10,000 kids doing this activity, but I'll leave it to James to describe exactly what they got up to. So the, the Cyber Live activity that we launched earlier in the week is a simulated mass infrastructure attack. Um, it involves uh, a captain of a Navy frigate um, being locked in their vessel. The, a hacker has overtaken all of the control systems. The, the captain can't get out of the vessel. The weapon systems have taken over. Um, and Australian kids need to solve a range of cybersecurity problems to um, release the captain, take back control of the system and, and ultimately thwart the attacks. Doesn't that sound really cool? Now, Grok Academy is a not-for-profit charity advancing computer education, so it works with um, a whole bunch of people, but helping teachers and everyone just understand this space and teach kids. And now they're starting to have, beyond coding, a really strong focus on cybersecurity. I think it's just incredible. You know, they're going to be able to just expand Australia's capabilities, the education behind it. Um, They're doing just some really amazing things with teachers. And as he says, you know, cybersecurity is going to increasingly just need to become part of tertiary education. 
I did really like when you asked him about how do you scale something so that 10,000 kids are involved. It's like, oh, well, you know, no worries, we've been doing this for a while. The explanation of what they're up to and how they're tackling it is really fascinating. Croc Academy has been, uh, I guess, running a number of courses and activities on this kind of scale. Uh, our earlier cybersecurity program that we've been running since February 2019 has had now over 170,000 Australian students participate in that time and really what what grok is trying to do is support teachers with the delivery of the digital technologies curriculum at this kind of scale i mean the the way that i like to think about it is that computing or digital technologies as we call it in the australian curriculum is something that the majority of our 337,000 australian school teachers never learnt um, at school never learnt at university in their initial teacher education, and now we're expecting them to deliver it as part of the Australian curriculum. We need to look at scalable solutions like Grok um, to support all of those teachers as they teach digital technologies and, and now cybersecurity as part of that. Now, of course, as we talk about our young students throughout Australia, Simon, you spoke to a high school student who isn't focusing on his studies, but instead is focusing on his million-dollar business. Well, to be fair to Nick Mahalo, he is actually focusing on school. He got oh, he's doing both. Oh, that's an overachiever, isn't it? He got permission from his teachers, aged eight, eight, 15, to come in and appear in the studio this week. But Sydney High School student Nick started out at 12 um, with his first app build. He started to get the attention of Apple and some others, and he's been on this amazing adventure ever since. So he's now running a business called Appstra, which is helping other companies build their apps. So he's got a team of 10 working with him, you know, writing six-figure contracts. He has had a buyout offer, which he knocked back for seven figures, um, and he's just pressing on. So I asked him about his story and how it all came about. Here's what he said. I became obsessed with technology and business around the age of 12. Um, I'd been doing, as, as you said before, Lemonade Sands before that and had that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, at around age 12, I learned how to code and launched my first app to the App Store at age 12. Um, and that kind of blew up and Apple took notice of that. And after that meeting with some Apple executives, they suggested that I start an app development company. And, and uh, that's kind of what I've been doing for the last two years. I love that he was just obsessed with technology and actually put that obsession, that passion into a venture. Well, you know, that was three years ago, if you think about it, Elliot, and I was still trying to get my son to set up my iPhone for me. Um, he's 17 now. Hi, Archie. Um, but this this kid is, and he is, he's a young man now, but still a boy, um, is absolutely amazing and quite inspiring and incredibly focused. So I also asked him about mentoring and advice because he's been kicking around with Mark Cuban, Mark Buros, and a couple of others. Yeah, well, I've had some great mentors and people I've spoken to so far. Um, I would say the best person I've spoken to has been Mark Burris, and uh, his advice to me was just to, you know, realize that there are trade-offs with, with this and you need to learn how to manage people's expectations as it relates to this and try not to get too um, above yourself when it comes to it and try to be humble at the same time. Um, I really need to get Mark Cuban's number off him because I never get that email <laughs> back. But he's, you know, he's actually reached out to him. He's got some advice from um and they've really been able to help shift his shift his focus, as as he said. You know, they were able to instruct him on that buyout, 
um, and how he got and how to get around that. Yeah, and Steve Jobs is one of his heroes, of course, the Atlassian duo. So off the back of that, I did ask him whether he wanted to work for everyone, anyone, or whether he wanted to be the captain of his own ship. He's got a pretty clear idea here. I think first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur, so I enjoy leading teams and managing my own things. Um, as for industries, I, I want to work in within, within startups. It's definitely... Um, I would say just just focusing on apps and, and right now the um, space that's interesting me is the 10 minute delivery space and that really rapid delivery market. That's something that I'm looking into and seeing well, how are they doing that kind of stuff and how can I work in it as well. Look, I, I doubt that's going to be the last time that we get him on Startup Daily, Simon. That is for sure. Uh, and I don't think it'll be too long before we see Nick on the Australians The List. <laughs> He'll have to get on our list first. I think we need to make one of uh, young tech billionaires, Simon. Yeah. Now, Elliot, Blockchain Week. Have you been excited? Have you been clubbing with sort of any of the blockchainers or anything? Ah, oh, mate, I tempted to go down to the tempted to go up, I should say, to the Brisbane finale party on Friday, but it has been a week. It's been so much excitement. We've had guests on every day on the Cracking Crypto Show where we have been discussing everything about it. And we started the week off with a bang on Startup Daily, Simon, with Senator Andrew Bragg, who joined you in the studio, fresh off his blockchain week and also fresh off a government press release. Well, actually, he preceded the government press release. Oh, he broke embargo. Well, there was was this great (laughs) moment um, where we sort of kicked off and we're having this discussion about taxing uh, NFTs and cryptocurrencies. And the reason I asked about that was because we had that discussion the previous week with Alex from William Buck about the whole system. And he suddenly announced on air that the Treasurer was announcing these uh, changes and review that was coming up with the terms of reference uh, for the whole digital transaction space and digital assets. And that happened live on air. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I haven't read this. I'm not prepared. <laughs> I, for me, one of the one of the highlights, and we spoke about this um, going forward as well, is he talked about um, DA, DAO, so the deautonomized organisations, and the reason why that's interesting is a because I haven't seen any conversations at a government level around the world that I've seen, um, but also he correctly points out they are actually quite a significant threat to the taxation system. Yeah, look, he was on familiar ground for the coalition on this front when he talks about the levels of company taxation in Australia, but he points out that this could be the sliding door where sort of a really important part of Australia's taxation revenue disappears. So, yes, he described them in the speech as an existential threat. I asked him why. Here's what he said. Very exposed on the corporate tax side, so we're the fourth highest reliant nation in the OECD on corporate taxation. So it's about 17% of Commonwealth revenue, which is more than double the average, right? So we we rely on our companies. So if our companies are going to be disrupted by offshore structures or domestically through Dow-like structures, but more likely through offshore competitors that uh, move their law reform at a faster pace than us, uh, then we're going to have a major problem. So the, the question is not if the question is what sort of Dow regime you put in place, uh, because you need to have this dynamic company structure embedded in our Corporations Act, uh, otherwise we're looking at massive tax leakage. So it's, it's, it's critical. Look, it's going to take some creative thinking around it because, you know, how you incorporate this into a corporate tax, it does sort of lose the point of the organisation. But, you know, 
There's a where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> well, we're just going to have to start calling them doubts, won't we? Because it'll be sort of decentralized autonomous organization taxation. <laughs> and of course, the other thing was taxation of the assets that a lot of people in Australia do hold. We've seen India this week come out with its ginormous tax on capital gains for crypto, um, and there's no concessions for that. So. I don't think the Australian government's going down that route. It's very much in the consultation phase, but, you know, there were some recommendations that he made when it comes to that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, the terms of reference, that so that email from Treasurer Frydenberg landed in my inbox while I was on air, basically as Senator Bragg was telling us about it. Um, and so this, this review is underway. The board is going to report back by the end of the year, but they're seeking feedback at this point in time. The goal of it is to uh, streamline and clarify taxation on digital assets rather than increase the overall tax burden. So I asked him about this not knowing this is what he was going to say. In the Senate inquiry, I recommended a review of CGT. What the Treasurer is going to announce today is that there will be a broad-based review of all crypto taxation uh, because, as you say, there are multiple problems here. And what we want to have is a system where Australia is a competitive place to do business, there's not incidental taxation occurring, and that we're only taxing real gains, for example. Right? We don't want to see friction tax points. We want to see genuine tax points uh, in line with traditional taxation principles. So we've got a long way to go. Honestly, at the end of the day, they've somehow managed to make the most exciting part of the universe to invest in very boring. (laughs) I'm sorry, taxation just just sends me to sleep, mate. But Elliot, he's removing friction. He wants to get rid of friction points. That is a noble ambition. It's a very noble ambition. I think I'm too cynical to believe that governments can do that. All right, now, Elliot, was your mouth watering when we spoke together this week? Uh, I saw the I saw the press release from Curtis Stone joining the team, and I I was just like, oh, having a party without having to do the hard work. Tell me more. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Gather is a Queensland startup that launched a couple of years ago. It uh, announced a one million postseed funding round this week. But yes, the headline bit was that they're now pushing into the US. And to do that, they've enlisted Curtis Stone, the expat Aussie chef who became famous appearing on Oprah. Of course, he's at Love Surfing. He's got a Michelin starred restaurant in Beverly Hills that he opened a few years back. And he'll be part of this whole thing where basically, yes, you order catering or you get someone to come and cook dinner in your home. Really cool prospect. They've been doing really well across Australia for the last couple of years. Now it's going offshore. And as you know, you're speaking about the growth plan. So obviously LA, as she said, is a launch pad, but it certainly isn't going to stop there because people want to get back together and have fun. Here's what she said. Um, And we're looking at, you know, LA is the first launch. It's obviously a very big region when you think about how far you can go out, you know, all the way out to Laguna and Santa Monica. Um, And to be able to then expand into other places in California, we think that, you know, it's going to make a lot of sense in San Francisco um, and and Palo Alto, you know, where there's a lot of big houses and people entertain, um, and then over into to Texas. And, you know, there's loads of places in the US that, you know, everyone we're talking to on the ground says you're going to do really well here. Um, you know, there's loads of locations where people love having dinner parties, love hosting in big, beautiful kitchens, um, and just love celebrating, but don't want to do the hard work. So are you going to have a dinner party now, Simon, without the hard work? Uh, yeah, actually, if someone set up a please come and wash up because dinner parties at my place is like six people, 28 glasses, um, you know, yeah, way too many plates. And uh, my wife would sort of say way too many pots and pans when I'm cooking. 
I'm very much a one pan person because I clean as I go. I don't live in a big enough kitchen to have two pots and pans going at one time. Now, Simon, as we record this on microphones, there's becoming better technology. So if you have issues with our audio right now, we're working on it with our uh, startup in New Zealand. Well, wouldn't that be extraordinary, Elliot? Dodderall Tech CEO Sean Edlin joined us on the show. They had a raise. Um, Rocket Lab's Peter Beck was amongst those who backed the New Zealand $3 million round. But this technology is absolutely extraordinary. I kind of have these sort of James Bond spy, you know, um, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible sort of visions going in terms of the audio because they've built these incredible microphones that are able to hear sound that you want to hear at a distance like a conversation and somehow cut out all the white noise. So I asked him, how on earth have you done this? Conos is a breakthrough microphone product that uses the power of 80 microphones in one very small package to form what we call cones of sounds. Um, this allows the capture of clear, crisp sound in very high noise, uncontrolled environments. Um, essentially, it uses software and hardware, um, and the user can change the size of these cones to match the environment, effectively providing the user many microphones in one. It feels a little bit like, you know, there's that parliament in the Parliament House is that corner that you stand and you can hear the corner on the other room. Do you remember oh, yeah, that yeah, from like your year seven class? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like it's doing. It's just doing that wherever you decide to point the mic. Yeah, well, it sounds like they've got incredible ambitions along with a brilliant idea on this front. So I did also ask Sean about where he wants to take it to next because the world is their oyster. They're already testing. They're in beta phase and a couple of entertainment groups, film companies are using this, but there is much more opportunity at industrial levels, a $500 billion market that they could address. Our vision in the very near term is to establish a new class of microphone that we believe will become the, the industry standard and preferred choice for sound engineers in the entertainment market. And that's really the product that we're making at the moment, very focused on that entertainment market. However, the the bigger vision and bigger um, you know, long-term goal is uh, to allow listening and communication everywhere in any high-noise environment um, or on any high-noise platform. You know, We really started out um, solving the hardest problem first, essentially providing two-way communication on drones, one of the noisiest things we could put a microphone on. Um, and in doing so, there's realizes many other very exciting platforms at this go on that are very noisy, be that your vehicles, uh, ground robots, and even for public space monitoring um, with the one, addressing the one billion security cameras around the world. Wow, that's a company that certainly we're going to see more and more of uh, in the in the tech and audio space. Yeah, I think they're going to have enormous fun and success along the way with their Colonel's microphones. Now, Simon, next week is Budget Week. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot that this is the last Friday before budget. So, uh, yes, we will be having full coverage on Startup Daily next week, including reaction from a whole bunch of sector leaders on Wednesday. So tune in for that to see what they think of the budget. Are you excited, Elliot? Oh, you know, Simon, I, I, I could think of nothing better than reading thousands of budget papers and all the dollars and money and cents 
Well, I just kind of, given the old budget lock-up, which was never a great deal of fun, and especially the catering, hello, Gather, that's where they really need you. Um, I'm kind of hoping they got a better digital experience where they could trust us to go through these papers beforehand without having to travel down to Canberra because the budget lock-up is so anachronistic nowadays. It is the strangest ritual. Come on, Josh, if you're listening, or um, who's running the opposition treasury? <laughs> Simon, we should know this. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll get there. We'll start to pay attention a little closer to the election. But uh, I hope they can modernise that and bring it into the digital age. If you're a startup founder, figure out a way to make budget night a little bit more digital and exciting. I'll invest. There you go. That's the challenge for the for the founders next week. Simon, how about we call it a week and we'll see you after the budget. Have a great weekend, Elliot. We'll see you all 2pm Monday on Startup Daily Show. Bye for now. <laughs>